it'll be the best part of my day. All right, so let uh, James chapter 1. We have made it now to the ninth week of our effort uh, to walk through the book of James together. Uh, and I know a lot of you are hoping that maybe this is the last time for several, several months that I have you turn to James chapter 1. Um, Yes, it is. You're welcome. All right, so uh, you know, we, we have been walking through the book of James together for uh, nine-ish weeks now, on and off. Uh, and, and James is a letter uh, written by James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, a man that moved quickly from doubting the messianic claims of, of his brother. Uh, like, like, that's a hard thing for any brother to do, in my opinion. I would struggle with it as well. Um, I know my brother would definitely struggle with that if I were claiming such a thing. And so um, James moves from doubter of Jesus' messianic claims all the way into leader in the early church and willing to die for those claims. And so something changed in that boy. What changed in that boy? Well, the resurrection happened. That's a big jump. That's the kind of thing that can make a, a life have that kind of about face in it. And so resurrections have that effect. And, and the letter that bears James's name uh, is a letter that deals with a number of incredibly practical, incredibly functional things about what it means, actually means, to be a follower of Jesus. It, it, that's a debate that James is kind of dealing with in his day, kind of wading into, uh, in the culture, Christian culture at least, uh, that he was uh, dealing with in that time period. And James seems to be, the letter, seems to be chiefly concerned with people actually knowing and following Jesus rather than merely claiming to know and follow Jesus. And if you didn't know, there's a giant difference between those two. I, I don't know if you spend a lot of time in church. It's possible to be <laughs> one and not the other. And we talked about this last week, but James is going to wrap this letter around the idea of, of faith. But not, not faith as some kind of ethereal belief that's just kind of disconnected from reality, disconnected from what's around you. I don't care what you say, but I'm going to cling to this belief anyways. That's not, I mean, a lot, that's a lot of times how faith gets painted by those who are outside of it. That's not what the Bible means by it at all. For James, uh, James is going to hold up and celebrate what I would call an authentic faith that has real-world effects on both you and on everyone else around you. It moves the needle on some things. For James, biblical faith, a, a genuine trust in Jesus, is not just something you claim to have. It's something that has you. It's something that can be seen by those outside of you. It can be measured. and can, You can track your growth in it. It changes stuff. Last week, we, we looked at how James pointed to the very real difference that exists between a hearer of the word and what he called a doer of the word. Do you remember that? That for those who are reconciled to Jesus by Jesus, the scriptures, the word of God, it becomes a mirror that examines us for our own good. Not, not because it paints a flattering picture. Right? Not, it makes us feel nice about ourselves and affirms our self-professed value and ambitions. It's because it does the opposite of that, actually. It completely wrecks us. When, when we look into the Word, it, it does not paint a flattering picture at all. James's point is that, is that what we are seeing, what we truly are spiritually, we can accurately see the things that God is working in us. And then we can take grace-fueled steps to begin to chase after growth and change. But James goes on to say that looking deeply into that mirror only to set it down again, walk away, and not deal with the problem that it revealed, well, that's folly. It's folly. 
We're not deceiving anybody else by that disconnect. We're deceiving ourselves. But, but the one who picks up the mirror and looks at it closely and then goes to work uh, dealing with what it sees, James says that that man is blessed in his doing. Okay, great. File that one away. So what's next? What's the next pearl on the string or for James? Well, James is going to begin to elaborate on what's included, I think, in a real-world definition of doing the Word. But what I can tell, he gives a few quick-draw categories uh, for things that he's going to expand upon later in the letter. All right? um, so we'll have more to say about it as we get deeper and deeper into this series. Uh, but we can go ahead and attack these smaller kind of categorical ideas from 30,000 feet this morning. You ready to do that? You're not ready to do that. Let's go anyways. All right. Verse 26. James chapter 1, verse 26. He says this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but, dece- uh, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is what? All right, so there's, there's a lot going on here, right? I, I think we can break it down, though. James says that if anyone thinks he is religious... Anybody's got ideas about how religious they are? Meaning, James has now set his sights on all the folks in his audience that who have a pretty high view of themselves when it comes to uh, how they're doing trying to please a holy God. That's who he's aiming at. Trying to please God through religious practice. These are the folks that hear James say that you need to be a doer of the word rather than just a hearer. And they go, all right, I'm in, I'm in a good place right now. All these I have kept from my youth. I'm not looking so bad at the moment. The Greek word that, that James uses for religious there, it's specifically talking about upholding the core tenets and practices of a cultic belief system, whether that's Christianity, Judaism, or otherwise. Uh, it, it, it's, it, uh, you're believing what you're supposed to believe, and you're knocking out the religious do, to-do list just out of the park, right? You're nailing all the things. But James comes along and and calls that high view of themselves into question. He says, hey, you could very well be just absolutely hammering all of this stuff. Uh, Like anything you want to put on the list, you can absolutely be nailing it. Uh, But if you're not bridling your tongue, well, then you're deceiving yourself. So it might behoove us to define our terms here, right? Because that's a dangerous warning. What does James mean by tongue? And what in the world does a bridle have to do with any of this? Well, the tongue is pretty obvious, right? He's he's talking about how you speak. He's talking about how you speak. You can believe whatever you want to believe about yourself and how you might or might not stand before God. But James argues that uh, right here that that what comes out of your mouth reveals what's actually buried inside of you. Reveals what's actually going on in your heart. Now, he's not the first person to say that. His half-brother said it first. Matthew 15. It is, not, uh, is it, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. James isn't saying anything new here. He's not saying anything new. For those of you who have been keeping up with your James homework, remember I assigned you James homework? Nobody remembers that I assigned him James homework. I said it would, it would be good for us spiritually and maturity-wise to, uh, to, to be reading this letter over and over again as we walk through the letter together. Uh, uh, those of you who have been keeping up with your James homework, you've probably noticed by now that James seems to over and over again just rephrase the Sermon on the Mount. He's just ripping Jesus off all over the place. He's allowed. 
But while James isn't saying anything new, the more I sit back and kind of pay attention to how the world works and how people operate in it, the more I notice uh, that, that people usually tend to completely butcher these verses. They completely misunderstand them almost entirely. Um, most people hear this and they immediately go to four-letter word land in their head. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. All right. They, they, they run through a long list of naughty phrases that they know are inconsistent with personal righteousness or if you grew up where I grew up, learned in a different language, right? Um, I'm from Texas, and relatively speaking, I'm very bad at Spanish, but I can do two things quite comfortably. I can order Mexican food, and I can cuss you out. <laughs> but while the list of naughty words is included in what James and Jesus are talking about, church, it is far from all that James and Jesus are talking about. James and Jesus are both chiefly concerned with how what's coming out of your mouth reflects the hidden posture that is already present in your heart. It points back to a polluted source that the fountain is flowing out of. And so for James and Jesus both, how you speak to people and around people and about people matters to them. It matters to them even more than the naughty words that you won't admit to knowing in polite society. And James says that regardless of success in other areas of religious concern, a heart that is spewing forth unholy things, that heart is deceived. It's deceived. Just like last week, those who are hearers only, everyone else sees the disconnect except for you. You're not, you're not fooling anybody, you're just fooling yourself. But as tragic as that reality is, and make, no, make no mistake, it is tragic. That level of, of unself-aware hypocrisy, it's a tragic thing. But James actually turns the volume up worse. He turns it up to 11, and the next thing he says, he says that that person's religion isn't just disjointed. It isn't just inconsistent. It's actually worthless. It's worthless. A commentary that I've leaned on pretty heavily so far throughout this series uh, it's called Exalting Jesus in James. Um, it points to this verse and it says this. Oh, Christian brother or sister, be warned here. Don't deceive yourself. When you speak, you tell the truth about your heart. The way men speak to and about their wives tells the truth about their hearts. Likewise, the way women speak to and about their husbands tells the truth about their hearts. The way you speak to your friends, the way you speak to your family, the way you speak about others, all of these things are indicators of whether or not your faith is real. If you are engaging in gossip, if your words are biting, if they are cursing, if they are angry, even if they are just plain inundated with trivialities, then be careful. You're showing that your religion is worthless. Like, I don't know how you, you read that and not get uncomfortable, right? All, all the yeah buts feel like they just are insufficient in this moment. Oh, but you don't understand, they were jerks. Doesn't matter. Oh, but you don't understand. They, they did this. Doesn't matter. How you speak reveals you, not them. Okay, but what exactly does James mean by worthless, though, right? What, what does he mean by worthless? Well, at the beginning of the word, uh, beginning of the verse, the word religious that we looked at, it, it carried the idea of, 
following the tenets of a religion, believing the right things, doing the right things. But here at the end of the verse, James uses a different Greek word or or a different form of the same Greek word. And so it it carries a different idea. Now, instead of talking about the core tenets of a religion, now he's talking about public devotion to a deity. Public devotion to a deity, meaning your outward actions of worship that everybody else sees. So follow James's logic here. Regardless of the other parts of your life that are, that, that are walking in obedience, your unchecked tongue can turn your public profession of faith into a giant act of hypocrisy that everybody else sees but you. And there ain't a person in this room right now that's comfortable with me saying that out loud. Myself especially. So out of a great act of love for you, I'm going to say that again. Just let it soak for a second. Regardless of the other parts of your life that are walking in obedience, your unchecked tongue can turn your public profession of faith into a giant act of hypocrisy that everybody else sees but you. And it's here that we now, I think desperately so, need to flesh out what James means by bridle. Right? So what is a bridle? Well, I got a picture for you. That's a bridle, or at least the business end of one. It's, it's a horse thing. It's a horse thing. I know many of you are already fully aware of what a bridle is, but we also got some city folk in the room who have no idea. All right? They need a little extra help this morning. And if you're one of those city folk, don't feel insulted. Every, every redneck here is going to have to come crawling to you for advice the next time they need to like, navigate around Boston. They're in over their heads. All right? Now, for those who are uneducated in all the things that you need to own if you want to own a horse, a bridle is something that is used to direct a horse specifically when you're riding it. Specifically when you're riding it. A lot of people confuse a bridle and a halter. They're not the same thing. They do different things. They're used for different purposes. And the chief difference between the two, the chief difference between the two, there's some other differences, but the business difference is that thing right there, that metal bit in the horse's mouth. That bit... There's a very, very real reason why it was invented. And there's a very, very real reason why animal rights people hate it. Because he who controls the bit controls the horse. Period. The slightest pull to the right, the horse is going to the right. The slightest pull up, that horse is stopping. If you use it right, that horse will do what you want it to do. If if it's not doing what you want to do, you haven't used the bit right yet. Horse is bigger than the rider, the horse is stronger than the rider, but the guy who put the bridle on is in charge. James says that those who are free from hypocrisy in religion, those whose outward worship is actually consistent with their proclaimed piety, they've bridled their tongues. They've bridled their tongues. The tongue is a mighty instrument that can be used for incredible good, and it is a mighty instrument that can be used for incredible evil. But the one who put the bridle on is in charge. Church, James is saying that you're either in charge of what's coming out of your mouth or you're not actually in charge of what's coming out of your mouth. Like I mentioned earlier, James is addressing this issue from 30,000 feet. He's going he's gonna to dig into it with a lot more detail and nuance when we get to chapter 3. But for now, I, I, think we, I think James would call all of us to think very, very seriously about what we, what we say And how that reflects the true nature of what's going on in our hearts. It reflects the true reality of what we do and don't believe. 
Forget about grand public professions of faith. How you speak is tipping everybody else around you off to what's actually going on. You may not see it, but they do. Now, that does not mean, it does not mean that every failure of the tongue is some proof of a mistaken faith. We are feeble and frail, and our God understands our frame, but but to hold up the mirror of the word and to see it accurately reflect the inconsistency, the sin that still lurks deep under the surface and not do something about that, that's folly. It's folly. I don't know if you've noticed this, but words are cheap in our culture. You come across that yet? Whether we're in the joking moment or the mad at somebody else moment or a thousand points in between, we often spew forth things as if they don't have immediate consequences, let alone eternal consequences. But there's an eternal reality in play every time we open our mouth. You want to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer? James says, watch what you say. Watch what you say. Be the one who is in charge of your tongue and instead of letting your tongue be in charge of you. But how we speak is not the only thing on James's radar. He's got more to say. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All right, so we got, we got a few pieces to deal with here. Uh, James starts out by using the same word for religion that he used at the end of verse 26. So he's not talking about core level tenets of a religion. Uh, these are the things you're supposed to believe. He's talking about uh, the outward actions of showing love and worship, devotion to God. Basically, James says, hey, you really, you really want to know what kind of worship is like uh, pure and undefiled in God's eyes? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what makes God happy in your worship. Those words pure and undefiled, there's more nuance there uh, than what you immediately see if you just read it in an English translation. For pure, that's a word that was used in, in, in James's day uh, to talk about something being ritualistically clean. Meaning there's no sin on it. It hasn't been disqualified through some unrighteous action. Undefiled is a different word. Undefiled, that's a word that's used in James's day to talk about something being physically acceptable as a sacrifice. In other words, the animal has no blemishes and is therefore considered to be worthy of the, the worship stuff. It's considered worthy to give to a holy God. Smash those two ideas together and you've got almost everything that was required of God's people in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So what, what's missing out of that equation? Well, what's missing is the fact that God repeatedly rejected their sacrifices in the Old Testament whenever they were not accompanied with a genuine concern for personal righteousness and caring for the poor in their midst. I told you a couple, a few times now, I think, throughout this series, that James sounds an awful lot like the Old Testament wisdom literature, but sometimes, sometimes James sounds an awful lot like the Old Testament prophets. In Amos chapter 5, God says this to his people, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Isaiah 1, the OG prophet, says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. 
I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. uh, Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So God asks this question, <laughs> who's required all these, like, these outward actions of worship from you? There's a very clear answer. God did. God required all those actions. In fact, he, he, he even threatened to like, like wipe them out as a people if they didn't do all those actions. He clearly commanded all those things, but not a single one of those things by themselves and no mixture of those things grouped together in a clever way could ever distract God from the obvious reality that their hearts were far from him. He sees what's going on. They had no real desire to pursue him or properly represent him to the nations. They were nothing but a, they were nothing more than religious actions leveraged by a calloused people as nothing more than an attempt to try to manipulate him towards something they wanted you don't love me you want something from me take away the noise of your songs i don't want them they make me sick songs are not bad songs are commanded from him clearly so but songs not backed up with a functional substance they're nothing more than noise to our god Clanging symbols. James says, you really, like you really want to know what kind of worship is pure and undefiled in God's eyes? I'll tell you. And then he gives them two action items. He gives them two action items. First one on the list, visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. That word for visit means to check in on folks. Means to check in on folks, like insert yourself into their lives so that you can accurately understand what it is they are dealing with. And maybe you're able to fix their problem, and maybe you're not able to fix their problem, but either one of those options, they are not walking through that problem alone. Check in on folks. So, does James literally mean orphans and widows here? Well, in one sense, yeah. Yeah, he does. This is another place where a familiarity with the Old Testament is helpful in reading this letter. All throughout the Old Testament, orphans and widows is used often as a shorthand for talking about all people who are in need. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.18, Psalm 9.18, Psalm 68.5, Psalm 146.9, Isaiah 1.17 that we read just a second ago, Jeremiah 7.5.7. A few of those, you can add sojourners into that little mix of of examples. And so James certainly, certainly has literal orphans and widows in view here. They're clearly in that category, uh, but James commandeers this Old Testament kind of phrasing to point to a larger reality that he's going to spell out in more detail later in the letter. That the mature in faith aren't chasing after things that they can get for themselves. They're not jockeying for position. They're not leveraging their their seat at the table or their resources for their own good. They're actively looking to serve those who have need. 
In the next chapter, James is going to attack the tendency that exists in every one of our hearts to kind of show partiality to those who can scratch our back in return. We'll get into that when we finally get to James chapter 2. But to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, while, while killing off partiality is a good thing, it is not the end goal. We chase instead at actively buddying up next to and looking to serve those who cannot return the favor. Those who have no status, those who have no position, those who have no resource to do the same in return to us. And you never thought through it before. This is a key part of the job description of what we hand to our deacons here in our church family. To make a consistent habit of checking in on folks. To visit them. If not literally, maybe through some other means, but to check in on folks. Not, not because that, that's a job that they alone have and nobody else in the church has. Uh, that, this is what maturity looks like for all of God's people, but church leadership is always and fundamentally a lead-by-example kind of deal. So we, we call deacons to do that because that's what maturity looks like. And our deacons all have different personalities and skill sets. They accomplish this goal through a dozen different angles and ways. And on top of that, <laughs> we've also learned that every individual in our church family has a very different opinion on what it means to feel checked up on. All right? Doesn't matter how many times we call, it wasn't enough. Sometimes it doesn't matter how many times we call, it's always too much. All right? We're trying to work it out. Welcome to a sin-broken world. But by and large, I think our deacons do an incredible job with this. I think they do a wonderful job. Can we grow in some things? Of course we can. But I also think that our church is in its healthiest place when we get this nailed down. We get this right. And so we lean into it. But there's a second thing that James points to in verse 27. He says that pure and undefiled religion before God is also actively attempting to keep ourselves, quote, unstained from the world. So what in the world does that mean? Well, he's pretty obviously talking about sin here. I think it's bigger and deeper than just simply keep yourself from sinning. I don't think that's what he has his sights on. James doesn't use the word world very often in this letter, uh, five times by my count, here in chapter 1, once in chapter 2, once in chapter 3, and then two times in the same verse in chapter 4. And the other times he's using it, he's never talking about the planet that we happen to live on or even the people that make up the world. He's talking about the systems and structures that we create for ourselves. The world. That we've built. Because of that, I think here in chapter 1, James has his sights set on us, consciously avoiding the influence that a sin-bent culture might have upon us. Rather than leaning into sinful systems, James calls us to be very, very careful about how we participate in them. And maybe, maybe sometimes actively flee from them. Oh, but... The whole world is broken by sin. You can't just, I mean, you can't just remove yourself and avoid it all the time. There's no, there'd be nowhere else to run. Yep, you're absolutely right. But not all systems and cultures are created equal. Some you can navigate through successfully. Sometimes, though, a system or culture is so bent by sin that it's impossible to stick around for very long and not be changed by it. stick around very long and remain unstained. It's impossible to come out the other side and not have been compromised. Okay, but I, I get all that, but what about our missionary mandate, right? We can't just bail out of everything and leave people without a gospel witness. 
How else are people going to find out about Jesus if we're not in those sinful places to tell them about Jesus? You're right. Absolutely right. In fact, I can even go step beyond that. No missionary ever has ever stepped onto a mission field, gotten to that mission field, and found a perfectly righteous people waiting for them. It's never happened. It's always a mess. All of evangelism, every ounce of it, has happened in places and in hearts where people loved sin and celebrated sin and pursued sin. They don't know Jesus yet. What else would they celebrate? Of course that's true. But it's also sometimes true in church history that we have sent missionaries into a mission field who weren't prepared well. And because they were not adequately prepared, they didn't last very long. The specific spiritual issues of that mission field were a kill box for their personality. And they ended up failing in sin in such a way that didn't just wreck their life. It also made it harder for missionaries coming after them to clean up the mess. So how in the world could we ever navigate such an incredibly complex issue without making very unhelpful blanket statements? Surely there's no one-size-fits-all here. Of course there's not. But what can we do? Well, I think the most important question we can ask is, which direction does the influence flow? Which direction does the influence flow? Whatever fill-in-the-blank culture or system you want to assess, do you have a larger influence on that system, or does that system have a larger influence on you? the bit in the horse's mouth all over again who's controlling it are you in control or is that environment in control we often slough off these kind of questions as if they don't have any kind of real relevance for us or and sometimes we even you know kind of argue that they're supposedly unfair questions for people to you know to have to answer that's just another way that we often deceive ourselves i think we pretend that the problem's not actually there and walk away with the spinach in our teeth this ain't a game There are very real eternal stakes involved here. James says that to walk into this in a way that fails to see the importance is not something that God takes lightly either. Worship that is pure and undefiled in God's eyes, it maintains authority and control over what it says, and it spends its time and energy on those in need, and it takes sin incredibly serious. Like it actually is dangerous. It understands that the sin-broken world that we're living in is always trying to redirect your affections to something less lovely and less eternally satisfying than God himself. And those who understand that tactic, who see it for what it is, James says that they put up some defense tactics of their own. Combat against it. Not because you need to earn or maintain your, your position with God, your place with God. You cannot, <laughs> you cannot clean yourself up enough to be pleasing to Him. And if, like hypothetically speaking, if it were somehow up to you to maintain your salvation, maintain your position with God, you would have lost it the second He gave it to you. Or am I the only moron in the room? I guess I'm the only moron in the room. All right. I, I got some really bad news for you. Despite your best efforts, Despite your best effort, you are going to say the selfish and stupid thing every once in a while. Despite your best effort, you are going to fail to be as concerned with those around you who need help as you ought to be concerned. 
And despite your best efforts, sometimes, unfortunately, you will fail in sin that you should have seen coming and prevented. We've all been there. Me too. You did not earn and you cannot maintain, but an authentic faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord creates an effectual change in you. Creates an effectual change in you. It's a change that can be seen by others. It's a change that grows over time to cause you to look more and more and more and more like the one who joyfully calls you his own. It changes what you value. It changes what you chase after. If anyone thinks he is religious, James says that there will be some things that we can point to. No, you're not nailing all of this. But are you growing in this? No, you're not perfect. Are you more righteous than you were yesterday? So what do we do with this stuff, right? Like, we've got this call in front of us. What, what, do, we, what do we do with it? Uh, some of this stuff may come a little easier for some of us, and some of it may feel like a giant mountain that's impossible, impossible to climb. Like, what, what do we do with this? Well, the good news, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is neither impressed with our relative success, nor has he ever been overwhelmed by our weakness. He doesn't play either of those games. He gives us himself. And he gives us himself in spite of ourselves. Knowing fully the depth of our sin, knowing fully the depth of our problem, and saying, I want you anyways. But he also delights in slowly but surely recreating you to look more and more and more like him. So if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think he's showing us that he doesn't play around with pretense. He has no, he has no he's not impressed with that. What are we doing? He sees right through that. He joyfully calls you his own without a shred of anything you could ever try to bring to the table. He doesn't need it. He doesn't want it. It insults him, actually. But in calling you his own, in calling you his own, he, he will flip you upside down, he will turn you inside out and scrape out every last bit of you that doesn't look like what he wants it to look like. And he will do it all for both your good and his greater glory. Get ready. So I think our response this week probably needs to take the same shape that, well, that David's response took when, when he realized his incredible sin before the Lord. Search me, O oh God. Know me. Search me for more. See if there be any wicked way in me. David, David leaned in to the examination because he trusted the one doing the searching. He trusted his goodness. And he trusted his care. And he trusted that God would get him to where God wanted him to be. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song that's a space that we provide for you to respond well, to to. to Put some action to this instead of just rushing out to the next thing. I heard somewhere once that that was dangerous. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can you respond to God's word? The answer is absolutely yes. You do that by meeting Jesus. By meeting Jesus. Uh, the Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from God. Uh, and that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls that death. Not a fun thing at all. 
You can't clean up your language enough. You can't be concerned with the least of these enough. And forget about the, ever trying to avoid the stain of sin. The Bible says that before you know Jesus, everything you do is filled with sin. Every ounce of it. Giant pile of sin that's adding up all the time. So is there happy news anywhere in this? Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's that Jesus specifically came to save sinners. Jesus specifically came to save sinners. He came to gather people for himself out of those with self-serving tongues. And he came to gather a people for himself out of those with self-serving agendas in their relationships. And he came to build a kingdom by saving those who are stained all over every ounce of them with sin. He came to call them his own clothe them in his own perfect righteousness and to walk with them as he slowly shapes them more and more every day to look more like his good image. So how does he do all that? Well, for starters, God the Father sent the Son, Jesus, God in the flesh. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lives the sinless life that I can't live and that you can't live and none of us can live. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin, to, to wash all that away by taking it upon himself. He was raised again as the, uh, from the dead as the vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And the, the one who now stands victoriously over that grave, who has conquered sin and death, calls you to respond to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus by placing your trust in him, by repenting of your sin and coming to him in faith. And I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. If you want to talk, I'll be down front. We can talk. Or maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's time to formally join our church family. God's, God's, God's called you to plant yourself here. And, you, and maybe you've got questions about what that looks like. Okay, questions are not, not a problem. Let's deal with the questions. Let's do something about it. Or maybe it's time for you to finally be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. And maybe you've got questions about the what's and the why's and the how's. Okay, we can talk about that too. Or maybe it's time to, to take a public step of commitment to some call God has placed upon your life to take the gospel somewhere else from here. Man, let's... I mean, you got no real idea about what that looks like in a real world, but... I can walk with you. Let's figure that out. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. God, there are times I can point to where my outward public devotion looked really impressive to those who don't know any better. And I can think of times where I nailed all the core tenets to those who don't know any better. But you see through the pretense. Thank you for calling us your own even as we completely fail to even do the simple things you've said. But God, we don't, we don't want to stay there. You've, you've shown us how we really look in the mirror. Help us walk away and do something with it. Guard our tongues. Teach me how to put the bridle on. 
direct my heart to those who can't serve me back. Give me wisdom to navigate the sinful world that surrounds us. Guard me from failing in sin like I so easily do. But also thank you that even before I fail, you have satisfied every need. That I have an advocate for when I sin. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for his death in my place. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you call people into your kingdom? And yeah, (laughs) that is the first step in a lifetime of things you're going to change in them. uh, The more I get to know you, the more I think it's worth it. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.